Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by the United Ways of Chautauqua County. United Way is a nonprofit organization that mobilizes the community to help every person and family improve their lives. Donations to the United Way stay 100% locally in our community and get invested in more than 40 community-based programs. These programs help students achieve academic success, families to be self-sufficient and financially stable, and vulnerable households to get their basic and emergency needs met. The United Ways of Chautauqua County, proud supporters of community radio in Jamestown, New York. To learn more, visit uascc.org or call 716-483-1561. The Chautauqua Watershed Conservancy has been approved $360,000 to continue work in the Chattacoin River that includes debris removal and river bank restoration. We spoke with CWC Conservation Director Dwan Leaders about the projects. Jamestown City Council has approved a JLDC allocation of $327,925 in American Rescue Plan funds for the Chautauqua Watershed Conservancy. This is in addition to a $35,000 approval by JLDC earlier in March for debris removal in the Chattacoin Basin. We have CWC Conservation Director Twan Leaders in studio with us to tell us more about what this funding is going to be used for. And there are a number of projects that you are planning to do with this funding. Uh, so can you give us an overview first, maybe about what is going to be done with the debris removal? Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is actually a whole um, series of projects um, that were initially broken into smaller pieces because I wasn't expecting to get the entire project fully funded, but I'm very excited that it is, of course. Um, yes, yeah, so if anybody who's been to the downtown area near the Shadowcoin River Basin, uh, you may have noticed during the winter months that the water is really low. Um, this is sort of a, the result of the way the Warner Dam operates. Um, the Warner Dam has a summer and a winter schedule. Um, it changes on May 1st. On May 1st, the dam closes. And at that point, everything upstream from the dam, so the basin downtown below the train station behind the uh, comedy center, will fill up. And um, the, the dam will at that point help to regulate the desired lake level, Ashtakwa Lake level. So during the summer months, when it's generally a little bit drier, and we tend to lose more water in the lake from evaporation, um, and we have less rain coming in, snow melting, etc., um, that the dam helps to actually maintain Chautauqua Lake at a desired level. It's a very specific level. It's it's 1,308.25 feet above sea level. So believe it or not, we're like 1,300 feet above sea level for Chautauqua Lake. Um, and it's artificially maintained to some degree, uh, you know, barring, you know, rainstorms and really high dry summers at that level. So that's the level at which the lake supposedly is the most usable for summer recreation. It's also the level where we're not too much at risk for flooding if we have a big storm coming in because we have a little leeway there um it helps people getting their docks in and out and getting their boats to their docks as well um, but the result of it is that the, the water upstream from the warner dam essentially fills up to that level and then gets maintained so if there's too much water in the lake if there's a big rainstorm forecast the, the dam actually opens up a little bit more and feeds that water out but in the winter after november 1st the dam goes wide open for flood control so that's usually the time when uh, we get snowstorms, rainstorms, etc. So we have bigger spikes in the, the lake level, essentially. And the, the dam is just wide open to make sure that excess water gets fed out as soon as possible. Um, 
But the interesting thing about the scenario downtown is that there is actually a, a bottleneck, a physical bottleneck in the river uh, right by the Steel Street Bridge, um, the little bridge that goes right behind the power plant. Um, if you're ever there this time of year and you stand on the bridge, you will see that upstream from the bridge, the water level is considerably higher than it is on the downstream side of the bridge. That's actually the the narrowest point in the, in the Shadowcoin River upstream from the dam. So. When the dam is wide open between November 1st and May 1st, um, water is essentially held back from Chautauqua Lake at that little bottleneck at the Seal Street Bridge. And that's actually what regulates how much water can go through it. Since less water is going through that bottleneck than actually through the dam, the water level between Steel Street and the dam drops precipitously. So um, especially when there's a lot of water in Chautauqua Lake and a lot of water is being held back at that little pinch point, um, the basin can look almost dry. So you'll go down there and the the lake might be at flood stage, but the basin looks like a mud flat. <laughs> so so um <clears throat> anyway, that was a long intro to where I'm actually getting. Um so if you're down there in the winter and you look at these mud flats, you'll see just decades and decades and decades worth of debris. Um just all the abandoned utility pipes, traffic cones, shopping carts, there's some sad looking um kitty uh, car seats in there too. A lot of lot of woody debris, a lot of logs, some really old, some really interesting ones too. And another thing that you'll see there is that you'll notice that um, the basin is actually artificially created. So you can actually see tree stumps lining where the river used to be. Um, and there are actually some pylons that were driven into the basin historically as well. And the the... One of the the, uh, the impetus for one of the projects that I proposed to city council and to JLDC was to actually remove those vertical obstacles because um, during the winter months when there's no water in the basin, you'll see three, four foot spikes sticking up vertically from the mud. But as soon as the dam closes after May 1st and people start kayaking and canoeing in the basin again, you can't see them because they're underwater. Um, so those are true navigational hazards. If we have low water levels in a dam and someone might be canoeing out there, you might hit one of those and flip your boat. And obviously that would not be a desirable situation. So one of the projects is to actually remove those vertical um, obstacles for navigation. Um, and another smaller project is to remove as much as possible all of the debris that has accumulated in the basin. Um, the debris in itself is not necessarily so much a navigational hazard, but it's more of an aesthetical thing um, just to remove all the debris. Because let's face it, three, four months out of the year when it's wintertime and all of us who live here still look at the basin, you just see all the garbage and all the trash in there. So, um, yeah, so we're hoping to actually get started on that very soon. Um, that project was already approved by JLDC uh, a week and a half ago. Um, and uh, I've actually received permission from the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation to go ahead with these projects. They're actually waiving the permit requirements because these are, uh, it was kind of an unprecedented uh, request because apparently the DEC does not have um, permit exemptions for uh, navigational hazards. They have permit exemptions for other hazards, but not for navigation. So they had to kind of scratch their heads a little bit and um, think about whether this was something that needed to be permitted or not. Um, but essentially all we are doing is just cutting these off at the water level, at the lowest water level possible, so that when the basin fills up, when the dam closes on, on May 1st again, there will be at least five or six feet of water above whatever is left at that point. So certainly not something that will create a hazard anymore. Mm-hmm. And and some of the urgency is also, are you permi- when when is the time period where you're not permitted to do work because of fish spawning? Yes, that's another um, um, 
obstacle there too that after April 1st, DEC generally does not require or does not allow um, in water work, like any work that actually involves really um, disturbing the sediment, disturbing the bottom of, of any of the waterways, any of the banks, because that's when our freshwater fish are laying their eggs, they're spawning, so they're looking for little bits of vegetation to lay their eggs in or creating nests and such. Any work you would do that actually would upset the sediment at that point could jeopardize that and would obviously impact an entire year's worth of reproduction for these fish. So the nice thing here is that here too, it's it's something we have to navigate, um, but if we can get all the work done before May 1st, before the dam closes, Essentially, most of the obstacles we're removing are sitting on the mudflat right now, so there's certainly no fish in there. So, <laughs> so that's that's our plan is to really move quickly on this, try to actually get this expedited. Um, yeah, so we have fantastic crew standing by. Um, it'll be interesting to see what we can do. It'll be an interesting kind of juggle between having not enough water to get a barge in there versus not having or having too much water to actually be able to walk on the mud flats so we'll have to get a little creative with barges and mud mats and things like that so. are you thinking that this is something that'll be more starting in april or are you thinking maybe even as soon as this week um well as soon as the contracts are signed which apparently might happen as early as friday so i'm i'm anticipating if the weather cooperates and the water levels cooperate that we'll get in there next week Wow. So that is pretty soon. And uh, so the, the debris removal, that was the part that was funded with $35,000 from JLDC. That didn't need the council approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other request, because it, it exceeded the $100,000 threshold, is why council had to approve that on Monday night. So that included work more work in the basin area as well as then downstream from the Warner Dam. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's another project, uh, a larger project that has been discussed for quite some years. Um, uh, the, the result of the, the dam schedule that I just described um, also has an undesired side effect that during those summer months after May 1st, or between May 1st and November 1st, when, when the dam is closed and regulating, maintaining the, the water level at exactly the desired level, it does mean that intentionally we are maintaining that water level exactly at the same spot which also means that the water the the surface of the water hits the bank exactly at the same height every time for months on end Um, unfortunately the the soils around the basin and, and mostly around much of the river is what we call urban soils. It's just, you know, it's blacktop, it's concrete, it's chopping carts, it's rebar. It's just everything that's been dumped in there over over a century. You know, old, old buildings, foundations, things like that have been filled in. Um, so it's not necessarily a good soil. Um, it's also generally not soil that is properly vegetated. And so if you have just really crumbly banks and you don't have any vegetation growing on the banks there's really nothing holding that together so um simple rainstorms water um storm flushes you know water running over the surface after a big rainstorm um coming rolling down the hills towards the bottom where the river is right it just takes sediment with it and if you add to that the purposeful maintenance of a water level at exactly the same height um, you're also dealing with uh, a supersaturated um, interface between the water level and the actual bank. So what happens is every time the dam opens, even just a little bit, and again for the same situation I described earlier, like the 
the fact that there's a pinch point, a bottleneck just upstream from the basin. When the dam opens, it drains the basin fairly quickly, and then it just kind of slows down because the speed at which it then drains is sort of determined by that pinch point upstream from there. But because the water in the basin drains faster, um, it's almost like flushing a toilet. So you get this really rapid rush of water flowing out of the basin, and as it does that, it sucks the sediment that it's been saturating right at the water level with it. So every time the dam opens, you have right at that interface, you have sediment being sucked out. And unfortunately, because this has been happening for a long time and because we didn't truly realize that this was happening, and we, I, I've been looking at this for a few years. I knew this was happening. I wasn't quite sure what the mechanism behind it was, but this is clearly what's happening. Um, but the result of it is, regardless, that um, in some places, the bank below the train station has a horizontal cut right exactly at the water level that in some places goes two to three feet into the bank. So the trees that are growing on there or trying to grow on there um, are hanging on for dear life right now. Most of the sediment around the roots has been washed away. If you look at the basin right now and you look towards the train station, you'll see that most of the trees are leaning over the basin. Um, the roots are exposed on the water side because all the soil is washed away. And then if you just kind of mentally picture a three foot deep cut underneath those root masses you can picture that being a disaster in the making any of these trees are at the verge of falling over and if they would they would carve you know a, a car size hole out of the bank immediately which then would leave the bank even more exposed and any rainstorm would create a bigger problem still um so we've been aware of this issue for quite a few years and have been talking about fixing it for quite a few years so i'm really excited to actually get to the point where we've just gotten permission and the funding to actually do so so um the plan going forward is to actually stabilize that bank in the same manner as the opposite bank that was stabilized behind the bpu um using what we call living shoreline principles so we're actually we will be putting in um some significant stacked rock uh, to protect that same area where the the sediment right now is washing away because it needs to be something harder than just sediment it needs to be something that doesn't get impacted by maintaining that water level because we'll continue to do so um <clears throat> and we're hoping to actually build the bank back out to its original dimensions so it actually will go out in some places another 10 to 15 feet um, there's a shelf in front of the bank and then right past the shelf is a near vertical drop off of the channel that feeds, feeds into the dam um so uh, we'll have to do some engineering again this summer to make sure that we don't stack the rocks right on the edge and have them fall in the river, of course. <laughs> but um, the idea is to actually change the slope of the bank a little bit more. So by building it out farther into the water again, uh, we can actually reduce the angle of the slope, which then also gives us more surface area to plant vegetation on, which will ultimately be the one thing that keeps the banks in place. It's it's the roots and the vegetation that will keep it in place, not so much the rocks. The rocks really just... Um, harden your shoreline and just move the scouring action from the water to the next point downstream that's not armored so you're moving your problem downstream pretty much you're not fixing anything so vegetation is key absolutely here and this is where the living shoreline principle comes in so it's it's not just um an aesthetic thing although obviously it is because it looks nicer than just rock um but it's also creating habitat for all the animals that live there it's also our our um it's our mission. It's not even our, our intention. It's our mission to make sure that we plant this with native plant species, too. I mentioned it last night in city council. The only native plants that grow on that bank are poison ivy at this point. <laughs> it's it's the one thing we're trying to get rid of. Um, most of the trees that grow there currently are dead or dying. Um, there are Norway maples. There are all kinds of non-native trees that don't necessarily grow well in these kind of conditions. And um, 
The one tree species that is doing exceedingly well in those conditions right now is black locust, which is a native tree species, but it almost acts like an invasive and it's starting to take over all of the banks there, which in one sense is not terrible because it is something that does grow in those conditions and keep um, keeps the banks stabilized because of their root balls. Um, but the younger trees, I don't know if you've seen them, they have like inch long, really sharp spikes on them. And um, so not necessarily the greatest tree you would like to have right next to the river walk where people walk with their kids, of course. Like you, you don't want to accidentally grab onto one of those trees because they can really hurt you. Um, and then the other tree that's thriving out there, unfortunately, is Tree of Heaven, which we just treated last year. So hopefully they're not coming back this year. So yeah, we have kind of a mixed bag of undesirable species right there. We have uh, trees just clinging on to dear life at this point. Um, so one of the things, I'm just going to tee this up right now, um, expect that um, in the very near future, now that this project has been approved, um, those trees will come down. We will actually take the trees out. Uh, in a controlled fashion so we're not going to wait until one of them falls over in a storm and does more damage to the banks and then creates an even harder project and a more expensive project um so we'll we'll be talking about this more and just making sure that the community is aware of this too that um this is not another um fifth street oaks kind of situation these are trees that need to be removed these are trees that um will remove themselves if we do it for them um, but they will be replaced by much better vegetation soon. And if I remember from when you presented to the JLDC board, you're going to you're going to cut down the trees, but were you going to leave the the root ball there to at least keep the existing bank in, in place for some sort of you know? With, the, with I'm I'm assuming that you're not going to begin the rock build out, um, you know, and, and native plantings this summer, but you were going to, sounds like you were going to start removing the trees, but leaving the root balls. Correct. Yes. Yeah. The roots still function to just keep sentiment in place. And, um, especially the, the black locusts that are growing right now when they're actually, um, they're spreading, they, they kind of operate in the same way that the tree of heaven does that as soon as you cut them down, they'll start to root sprout, sucker sprout up. So if you cut the big ones down, you'll have lots of younger sprouts coming up. That's okay in the short term. That at least keeps the sediment in place until we're ready to actually do the reconstruction. But you're absolutely right. The um, the the tentative timeline right now for this project is that we will try to remove those trees as soon as possible. Um, this will actually be something the city will be doing. I've been in touch with Dan Stone for years talking about this, and he's as soon as he's got some time, he will um, gladly get in there and get this started. Nobody wants to see these trees come down and just do make a big mess. Um, but in terms of timing, um, again, going back to the Warner Dam opening and closing schedule, like it, it's a very dramatic change in how the water level is maintained inside the basin, uh, upstream and downstream from the dam, depending on whether it's open or closed. So um, May 1st, the dam will close. We'll go into summer setting. Um, so during the summer, we'll finalize our engineering, get all our permits lined up and all that. Um, the restoration efforts will focus on that section of the bank, um, the, the north side of the basin, so below the, um, the train station, essentially essentially between the two pedestrian bridges, that section right there. That's the section that's being undercut. That's the section that's really in, at risk of collapsing. But we're also um, now able to restore both sides of the bank below the dam, so between the Warner Dam and the North Main Street Bridge which has um, related problems, different because of just the, the energy of the water coming out of the dam. Unfortunately, the, the spillway, the, the outflow chute from the dam is too short. 
Um, the dam is owned by the DEC. It's a state-owned dam managed by the Army Corps of Engineers. It's not something that I could touch or we could touch. Uh, that has to be done by you know the Army Corps. Um, but unfortunately, as a result of the uh, poor design of that, um, there are two really large holes in the bank right where the outflow stops. So the, the similar to what I was saying earlier, like if you armor those banks, you're not solving any problems. You're just moving the problem downstream to the first unarmored section. And that's exactly what's happening below the dam. If you look at the dam, if you walk with the current, the second the armored sides of the outflow stop, there are two huge holes on either side where the, the current just eddies and just eats away behind the walls. So that needs to be properly addressed. It should have been properly addressed by Army Corps, but it wasn't. So, um, and anyone's walked that section will probably know that during storm events, the banks are actually too low. I'm guessing it's kind of sagged over decades. So if you get there in the spring, you'll see the water actually standing over the banks. It actually floods some of the lawn. Um, the few trees that are left standing um, there are not in great shape because for part of the year they have their feet in the water, which they're not really meant to. Um, and um, to add to all of that, uh, um, to all of those headaches, um, you've heard me talk about how alive the Shadowcone River is and how many great creatures still live in there. Well, we have a, a very lively population of beavers living in the city now. And they are literally um, chomping down the last few trees that we would like to keep in place there because they're the last things that keep our banks together. Um, so, yeah, I actually have, I literally have video of a beaver climbing out of, the, of that section of the river in broad daylight last summer, walking 20 feet in front of me and just hauling out of the water and started killing one of the trees that we wanted to keep still. <laughs> so one of the short-term projects we'll probably do with some students um, probably this spring is to actually... Um, start wrapping the desirable trees in chicken wire, just wrapping chicken wire around the base of the trees. That seems to discourage them, at least in the short term. The sad thing is that beavers, um, it's not a sad thing, it's just a beaver thing. They, their teeth keep growing, right? So they have to actually chew on things mm -hmm. to make sure that their teeth wear. Um, and because most of our bank trees are now tree of heaven or other like fast growing soft things like sumacs, uh, the beavers don't touch those because the wood is so soft it doesn't really wear in their teeth so they go for oaks and like trees that have been there for 60 70 80 years so those are the ones we really want to keep and those are the ones that they purposely pick right now just to sharpen their teeth and they're not necessarily building dams or anything like that they're just eating them just munching on them and killing them so yeah never a dull moment right and so and then there was a third project now, not necessarily down in the area where we've been talking about, but it involves beavers. Yes. <laughs> and this was uh, actually going out um, west of the outlet, you know, west of McCray Point Park along Jones and Gifford Avenue, an area that you said is called Canal Street. Mm -hmm. Yep. Which is not a street. It's not a street, <laughs> but it's kind of a street. Uh, it's laid out like a street. Um, yeah, it's... You've probably heard of paper streets, you know, streets that just exist on maps but don't really exist. So Canal Street is kind of a paper street, except that it does exist, but it's not paved. It's actually a canal. It's it's a canal that um, creates a shortcut through the outlets. So it essentially parallels Jones and Gifford Avenue. So if you're, if you're driving towards Saleron on your right-hand side, there's a sizable canal. It used to be a sizable canal. Um, big enough for smaller boats to go through to follow Jones and Gifford and not make the entire loop that the Shadowcoin makes, which I believe I measured it out at some point. I think it's like a 1.3 miles or something that it can cut off if you actually take the shortcut. Really? So I was told historically that um, you know smaller barges, boats that come in with cargo into Jamestown would go to uh, McCray Point, right, to the harbor. 
to offload there. Um, I'm assuming there are coal boats and things like that involved. Um, you know, once you offload your cargo, you suddenly don't need very deep water anymore. So if you can cut 1.3 miles off your return trip, um, you know, Canal Street was the way to go, apparently. Um, but and again, my, it's my understanding that after that had been in operation for quite some time. And actually, let me add to that. So Canal Street parallels Jones and Gifford. But if you're driving on Jones and Gifford, you will actually cross several canals that you kind of see disappear into the outlet forest, right? So those were all connectors to Canal Street. So um, businesses, I'm assuming, you know, people with boats could come off Canal Street, come off Chautauqua Lake and park their boats right off of Jones and Gifford and offload there. So there must have been additional industry there just to transport all kinds of goods. Um, but um, the existence of Canal Street and, and truly making a shortcut for boats to uh, to not make the long loop, apparently, you know, water follows the path of least resistance. So water started doing that, too. So apparently the existence of Canal Street, this engineered uh, shortcut, actually um, changed the hydrology in the Shadowcoin River to the point that at some point, and I don't know exactly when, but certainly decades and decades ago, um, the DEC put a water control structure at the upstream end of Canal Street, so closer to Celeron. So um, that essentially put a stop to having boats going through Canal Street. Um, and over decades, the the canal is sort of filling in, it's grown over. Um, so the, the upstream side of it is completely grown over and mostly filled in. But the downstream side of it is still there. Um, actually, if you ever canoe or kayak and you launch from McCray Point, and you go towards the lake, uh, as soon as you leave McCray Point and you go past the rowing club, you'll see a canal on your left. That's Canal Street. That's the entrance, actually, right there. Uh, and historically, it came out somewhere on the Celeron side of that big loop right there. Um, so the situation right now, and the reason why I brought this to city council is that um, even though Canal Street is no longer usable for ship traffic, for boat traffic, um, it still serves an important hydrological function in that it drains the entire outlet forest back into the Shadowcoin River. So um, anyone's ever been to the swamp knows that that whole place is a wetland and it does flood. And uh, so, you know, snow melt, you know, if you drive on Jones and Gifford, you look out of the city, you look to your left, you just see the ridge. You see as Jamestown is just that much higher. So all of the snow melt, all the rainwater that falls just comes rolling down a hill and then gets absorbed in these wetlands until they get saturated and then they flood. And it just it's a, it's a natural process. It's a very important process because it actually cleans all the runoff before it goes into the Shadowcoin, which is why, thankfully, our water in Jamestown is still really clean. Um, and we decided at some point to run a road through there and build some houses in there, and now we're dealing with flooding issues. But you can imagine that having Canal Street being plugged on one end um, change the hydrology, the, the downstream end is still open, so that's where the water would drain back into the Shadowcoin. Um, but, and this is where these beavers come in. So beavers have uh, spectacularly dammed the lower end of Canal Street now. So the drainage does not happen anymore. So whenever we have a big rainstorm, whenever we have a big snowmelt, all that water runs down the hill again. It hits the wetlands, um, you know, on your left-hand side of Jones and Gifford, if you were leaving the city. Um, the, the road will hold some of it back. There's culverts going underneath the road to just drain it back out there. But since there's no way for water to drain in any kind of rapid fashion because of these beaver dams, these blockages, water pools behind them, and that's what's been causing significant flooding on Jones and Gifford. Um, 
So it's a relatively easy problem to fix if the beavers wouldn't just come back and rebuild those dams over and over again. Um, <laughs> but these dams have been there for quite some time. Um, so it requires additional permits. I know the city has a nuisance permit to actually remove beavers from the wetlands, and they've been doing that just to try to mitigate um, the flooding hazards, you know, their businesses, their homes, their roads that are flooding. It's not a good situation, especially in the winter when things freeze over. It's dangerous. Um, but there's another factor that I think increasingly we're all becoming sort of collectively aware of is that not only are there environmental functions to these kind of wetland systems, but there are also ways to economically activate these areas and to you know, use them for you know, our, the greater good. You know, they're, they're, they're doing their own things for the greater good. They're cleaning our water and they're producing you know, clean air and all that with the forest that's in there. Um, but activating these kind of areas, allowing people to go kayaking in there and canoeing in there and fishing in there is really fantastic. Um, you know, for people to go biking on Jones and Gifford, hiking on Jones and Gifford on the extensions of the Riverwalk and watching this vibrant wetland system with all kinds of cool ducks and all kinds of wildlife in there, it's fantastic. So another factor to add to this is that the removal of these beaver dams not only would improve the hydrology of the area, but it would also allow for um, activation by adding additional uh, kayak and canoeing opportunities. So we're working with some friends um, um, to actually potentially look at activating some areas that have come up on the, um, um, the tax auction, some parcels that are actually on Jones and Gifford that have the potential to become activated. Um, there's actually... There's a paper street, an actual true paper street, and <laughs> going towards Canal Street from Jones and Gifford right by where the big radio tower is. Mm. So the first canal you come across when you leave Jamestown on your right-hand side, there's actually a public right-of-way. There's a paper street that follows that canal. So one of the things that we're thinking about is um, having some opportunities for kayak rentals out there. We're thinking about putting a, an Osprey platform at the end of that paper street for Osprey to nest in there and potentially putting... A wildlife viewing blind there too it's public property right now so it'll be a great place for people to just walk out and actually walk into the wetland and actually see what it's like and um, potentially put some um, raised boardwalks in there at some point because it does flood quite a bit still so one of the things we don't have and one of the things that comes up quite a bit and has been coming up for years too is that a lot of folks would love to just see what the, what the outlet forest looks like, right? And we have this beautiful bike path going by Jackson Taylor Park, and you kind of look into it from there when you're walking on the sort of raised railroad bed. Um, <clears throat> and I've, I've certainly had that same thought that having like an elevated walkway going from there towards the outlet so you can actually walk out there to the water's edge and just see what's out there and how beautiful it is would be really fantastic. So. That's a much bigger project, but I think this is sort of a small version of that, the possibilities of doing things like that and starting to activate this area and also making it more resilient. You know, we're, we're facing increasingly intense storms and increasingly um, up and down trends in, in our weather patterns. So the more we can get ahead of these kind of issues and make sure that, you know, the plumbing in our city works, so that the drainage works properly so that we can get ahead of these kind of issues, I think is really important. Um, and to be able to tell these kind of stories so people realize that, you know, this kind of muddy mess out there actually has a really important function and really has the potential to become one of our biggest economic drivers, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I mean, thinking about the amount of money, I think in your total, I think it was around $361,000 in American mm-hmm. Rescue Plan funds that were designated for uh, Chattacoin River activation projects. So, uh, 
this is a lot of work that you're able to get done. And as you said, I think before we started the interview, I think you've been working and saying that these projects should be done since at least 2015 uh, when uh, the Riverfront Management Council started meeting up again. And so now here we are, uh, it's 2023, and we're finally seeing some of this work finally actually coming to fruition. Uh, Earlier, I think 2022 you did, uh, a bunch of work. Uh, it was phase one of a project on the lower Chattacoin. I think that you had received. I'm trying to remember the exact number. It was like it was just over seventy one thousand dollars, and that was uh, over from Res- uh, American Rescue Plan funds as well for cleanup that you did in the lower Chattacoin. Uh, where does that project stand right now, and uh, with what you did there? Sure. So, yeah. So that was really phase one of what, in my mind, would be like the the long road to recovering and activating the Shadowcoin River, at least the Jamestown section. You know, there's obviously more of it outside of Jamestown, but we're we're working in the city, and we're working, you know, thankfully, with support from city council and with ARPA funding allocated to these important resources. Um, it's kind of a similar story to what I was just describing for Canal Street. You know, the, the river had been blocked up in places, and it, the river had jumped its banks and carved out new channels in places where the river wanted to go um, because it needed to. The water needs to go somewhere, right? So it was jeopardizing businesses. It was jeopardizing private homes. Um, we literally had no control over where the river was going anymore. It just did what it did. And fortunately, we had enough space that it can do that safely. But... You know, it wasn't a sustainable situation. Um, a lot of that was just lack of maintenance, um, but unfortunately, that was exacerbated by um, emerald ash borer. You know, the, the fact that all of our ash trees, which apparently is something in the 23, 24% of our trees in Chautauqua County are ash, are like literally one in every four trees is dying or is dead right now. We're at the point a few years in now where I don't know if you've got them in your backyard. I've got several in my backyard still. Most of the branches have fallen off by now, so you have these full-size dead standing trees that are just killing over one at a time right now. So um, what we did last year was truly just removing those physical barriers and obstacles from the river so that the river could go back into its original path again. Um, and um, that that was the necessary first step to just reassess like okay where are we what what does the river want to do what what can the river do um it was a fascinating process uh in so many different ways um but um it's it's very reassuring to know that the river can carve multiple paths into the city without doing any kind of physical damage to buildings and homes and people um because again there too in terms of climate resiliency and seeing the intensity of the storms change you know this this really made us all think about like what can we do to potentially create areas where we could store excess storm floods right you know if we have too much water coming down then the water dam is wide open just spitting water out and we all know well we don't all know but the powers that are know that if if we get to the point where all three of the gates of the water dam need to be open which can only happen on the really specific conditions when the Chautauqua lake level is at flood stage um the doors will open and people will get flooded downstream there's just no way there's no way about it so it's just damage control at that point so knowing that that may at some point happen or may be necessary being able to think ahead of what we can do to mitigate these these kind of events and knowing where we could potentially add more water without doing damage because the river has just done it for us and shown us where we could do those kind of things helps us to like over time develop a better strategic plan for how the river could be managed and could be maintained um you know 
for starters, we know where we should not be building anything because those are the areas that will go underwater as soon as something really goes south on us. Um, so those are really valuable lessons. Those are the kind of things we've learned from that that will all get wrapped into a strategic plan over time. Um, but to go back to the trees, the river really was probably for the first time in 50 or 60 years, the, when we were done removing all the debris from the river, it was the first time in, in decades that the river truly just did what it needed to do, what it used to do. Um, but anybody who's driving through the city will still see more dead standing ash trees. And we'll be in this situation for probably another four or five years where more trees will continue to come down. Um, so these are projects that just, they're, they're big projects, right? They take time. You know, like we just talked about it. Like, we've been talking about this for years, and now we're finally making these first steps. But the nature of these kind of projects is such that once you take that first step, you're really committed to seeing it through all the way to the end. You know, once you start removing those trees, which were dead already, it's not like we're killing trees or anything like that, but the trees were dead already, which means that their canopies were gone already, which also means that at that point, more sunlight was hitting the banks, but also the umbrellas were gone, right? So more rainwater will hit it. So those the, the sheer fact of all those trees dying already exposed the banks to more impact from rainfall and more impact from erosion. Um, I'm gladly killing thousands of other trees because all the tree of heaven we just injected last year. Most of those grow in big clumps along the river bank too. And the reason why we wanted to get rid of them is just because of that. Like we don't want them to take over the entire river. We also don't want them to be a magnet for spotted lanternflies, which can impact our our industry. Um, so yeah, we we um, our contractors treated. I had estimated originally when I put the project in front of city council. 1,400, I believe, trees that I identified within city limits. So, um, and by the time we finally got in there, we ended up treating over 3,500. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they're way more than we anticipated. Um, and unfortunately, there's still a significant patch of Tree of Heaven that we could not treat because it was actually located um, on private property. It was on a railroad company property, and we have not been able to get permission from the railroad to treat that area. So, um, just for reference, it's the uh, it's the area um, right below Pace's Pizza. I see. Yeah. Yes. So, mm-hmm. um, if you ever go to Pace's Pizza, which I highly recommend, um, <laughs> there's some giant Tree of Heaven trees towering over their building on the top of the bank, and their little shoots coming right out of their little parking lot. That whole strip, that little like strip of buildings right there. Their whole backyard is completely covered in Tree of Heaven, and then the entire bank going all the way down to the railway tracks is primarily Tree of Heaven. It's like a forest of that stuff. Um, so that's another project that we still need to tackle at some point. It's never ending. Um, but there too, you know, we we treated all of the Tree of Heaven last year. By treating, I mean um, injected every single individual tree with uh, herbicide right before their leaves were dropping, which is a time of year when these trees actually retrieve all of their nutrients that, that are in the leaves. So the leaves died. They looked like they, they turned beautiful colors, which is mostly because the tree itself is actually extracting valuable resources from the leaves, which they take the green out and they turn brown and orange, essentially. Um, that all gets stored in the roots for use in the springtime again because the trees need photosynthesis to actually produce energy to grow again since they have no leaves in the winter they can't do it so all their reserves are stored in their roots and then in the springtime in the next few weeks um, they'll come back alive again Um, so the timing was 
uh, really fortunate that we were able to actually treat those trees just before they dropped their leaves. So the trees were actively already transporting all the resources to their root system. So as we added some herbicide to the mix, hopefully all of that went into the root system. And that's really the only way we can deal with tree having is to kill the roots first and then remove the above ground parts. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm eagerly waiting to see if any of these trees are going to wake up or not. And uh, I'm hoping that the bulk of the 3,500 are dead so we can remove those um, later this year. Um, Odds are some of them are not dead yet. They're probably injured and will need to be retreated again this year. Um, We're also obviously dealing with a situation that's been in existence for I don't know how long, at least 10 years. So um, there will be a seed bank there. There will be new ones shooting up again. But there will be little ones. Those are more manageable. So I'm hoping to work with student groups and volunteers and hopefully some seasonals to actually um, just kind of keep taps on this. But it's kind of what I mean. Like these kind of projects, once you start them, you have to keep going. You have to see them through because if we would not do that, then it was just a waste of time and energy. You know, it's nice to have the river clean for a few months, but then trees fall down. And if we don't stay on top of that, we're back to square one. It's it's great to try to get rid of Tree of Heaven for year one, but, you know, you, you don't get 100% mortality. So if we walk away at this point, then, you know, give it five years, they're all back again because they spread like wildfire. Um, and the other aspect of it is that if we are successful and we do remove the, remove the Tree of Heaven, you know, between the loss of all the ash trees, one in every four trees, and then we lose all of the Tree of Heaven, too, there's nothing growing on the banks anymore. So this is where a revegetation effort really needs to take place. And if we're going to revegetate, let's get all the other invasives out there as well so we don't have those take over and end up with a city covered in spiny multiflora rose or that bamboo, like Japanese knotweed, right? Because that's what's exactly what will happen if we don't stay on top of this. Um, so, yeah, quite frankly, actually, I had actually, um, working with the uh, County Soil and Water Conservation District, we'd put together um, uh, a five-year grant request to New York State, a water quality improvement uh, project grant, to do exactly that, to actually follow up on the city's, the city-funded phase one to continue phases through three and four, you know, remove the rest of the invasives, um, state identify bank sections that were at most imminent risk of collapsing so we can stabilize those um, and then planting native plantings on the banks to make sure that those will actually stay stabilized in perpetuity and make them alive. You know, plant them with native plants so we have you know, monarch butterflies and pollinators and migratory birds and all these things that we like to see in the river just actually live right in our city. Um, unfortunately, because the project was so large and there were so many different aspects to it, it was kind of out of the ordinary for these kind of grant requests. So unfortunately, the grant did not get awarded. Um, So I'm really grateful that literally within five days, I was traveling back from Costa Rica where I was teaching a tropical ecology course when I found out that we did not get the WQIP grant on Friday. And on Monday afternoon, I was in a meeting with some of the stakeholders and it was suggested that JLDC might be interested in picking up some parts of this so we can keep the project going. And literally a few days later, the initial approvals were in place already. So fortunately, even though the multiple year grant was not awarded um, through this, these funding awards right now, through these contracts, I would say 75% of the year one or year two, I guess, in this point, projects are moving forward and uh, it just teases up perfectly for another round of applications in the summer again so um yeah so i'm optimistic that this is just going to keep snowballing into a really great project mm-hmm. so that that is optimistic because i knew you hadn't received the, uh, the state funding but it sounds like you have an opportunity where you can break that up into more palatable 
sections right. or segments. Right. On, so. Yeah, and some of the work will be done already. So by by virtue of that, the the, the project area will be smaller. You know, we're talking we're talking three and a half miles of Shadowcorn from the Warner Dam down to the Bullfrog to the Falconer Line. So you know, multiply by two, you have seven miles of bank. Most of these projects are like a couple hundred feet when people apply for these projects. So. I think I scared a few people when I send that in, but, <laughs> but, you know, getting some of the downtown work out of the way this year will be fantastic because that by virtue of that, it already, you know, reduces the size of the project area that needs to be tackled. Um, and sort of in parallel, I'm also working right now with, um, the Jamestown public school district, um, to do some work at the Harrison street site in the fireman's training center. Oh, yes. Yeah. That site right there is actually owned by the Jamestown board of education. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, because yeah, probably because it's a training site. So yeah. it, well, actually, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten the straight answer on that one just yet. Uh, but in, yeah, between Harrison Street and uh, and the Fireman's Training Center, actually is a, an, I guess it's an old uh, football field, a practice mm-hmm. field, right? Which is no longer being used, but the school district still mows it routinely. Um, they're still spending money on a site that I don't think they truly really grasp, but they actually own that. Um, that site actually. Um, was part of my plan for the uh, the WCRIP grant um, to actually activate that site also because it's um, it's right in the path of um, the, the new location, the potential new location for the new Y on Harrison Street. Um, so in my mind, that is a prime location to extend the Riverwalk to. If we can extend the existing um, Jamestown Riverwalk system from where it ends right now, right behind JAMA, um, and then wrap it around the Chautauqua Center and then go across to Harrison Street, um, the potential is there to make a really beautiful walking path that would connect the downtown area with the location of the new Y going forward, uh, which would be great. You can just go jog your way to the Y and walk and bike and do whatever you want to do there. But I really wanted that to be, if it ever comes to that, um, I wanted that to really be like a, a truly natural part of the of the river walk, not just a concrete path and then like a road right next to it. Because the potential is there, and it would fit really well with um, the bank stabilization that's needed there as well. So part of that WCRIP grant was to actually do some of the foundational work to stabilize some of the sections of the bank so that we could potentially then apply for another grant to actually extend the Riverwalk down the road at some point. Um, but to me, the the Harrison Street site um, has so much potential to become an outdoor classroom. I really would like that site to be built by, designed by our next generation, our local youth. You know, it's a block away from the high school. I've had students out there last year helping me remove some of the invasives. Um, um, I actually got a small grant from the Jamestown Public School Forest to to do some more restoration work. There's some old chain link fences in there that we're hoping to pull out um, because that site has increasingly become um, one of the more important nesting sites for spiny softshell turtles. They're hauling up on that side. There's increasing traffic on the opposite side of the river where the Gateway Center is. Mm-hmm. Um, so the turtles in the last few years have seemed to come up uh, the Harrison Street site a little bit more. Um, but they can't get onto land because there's an old chain link fence that's just kind of half buried in the ground. They can't get past that. And unfortunately, because they're following the, f- the old fence line, it actually spits them right out on Harrison Street. So the risk of them getting run over by cars is greater there. So so I've got a little bit of money and I'm I'm working I've got a JCC intern working on, on that for me right now, trying to figure out designs for um for artificial engineered turtle nesting beaches. We want to put some 
um, we call exclosures out there, not enclosures to keep the turtles in, but exclosures to keep the predators out from actually digging up the eggs and all that, because we have raccoons and cats and dogs and opossums and you name it. So um, I've worked with similar projects in Connecticut before, where uh, essentially you put rebar or something over top a few inches above the ground. So you essentially have a screen over top of the, the sandy patches where the turtles would go in high enough up that they can squeeze under it, but you know, nobody else can really get in there. So it'll be an experiment. We'll see how that works. Um, but I love the idea of bringing these these natural resources, these features, just to places where people can actually see them and enjoy them, to have a purposefully designed area where you can go see the turtles and watch them nest and see the babies hatch later in a year. That'd be pretty cool, especially if that's going to be right next to a future river walk. So starting to build these kind of features into this already, into the landscape. And like, how cool is that to have that right in the middle of the city, right? So... Um, and there too, it's a block away from the high school. So the opportunities for students to do a little research project, for classes to walk over, it's just fantastic. And I, I would love to see a contest at some point within the school district of how, like, I, I wish for students to could just come up with what needs to happen with that site. And I'm happy to see if we can make that happen. But, you know, honestly, if, if they would just stop spending money on mowing this football field that nobody uses and they just actually threw some wildflower mixes in the air and just let it grow into a giant butterfly garden it would already be an improvement and it would save everybody money so there are little things we can do so easily that would just totally change the appearance of the river and just really i think bring to the surface the potential that we have to truly activate this this river here and um I missed a meeting yesterday, but much of Jamestown um, is in a state-designated um, environmental justice area, proposed environmental justice area. So it's it's like a food desert, right? You know, there are people who you know may have the resources to buy food but just can't get to it because they don't have a vehicle. They just live too far away from a store to really have access to decent food. And it's not that dissimilar for people who live in urban environments to just be deprived of nature. You know, I... I have a backyard. I'm fortunate to have to have a backyard, and I don't mow it. My kids love to roll around in the tall grass and stuff. And but uh, you know, not everybody has that opportunity. So, to create those kind of infrastructure elements and and provide those kind of resources in these kind of environmental justice areas where people will have a place to just go walk and just go see some butterflies and see some birds and see some turtles and just have a nice peaceful place to just go for a walk. I think is really important. So uh, we're getting close to uh, end of our time that I can uh, talk to you, but I'm going to continue with one more thing because I know you recently received some funding from Chautauqua County for, I think, to study the very lower Chattacoin and where the Chattacoin starts to outlet uh, into other water systems and including where the Martin Cobb waterway trails are for the county park system. Yes. So the the work that we did last year in the Chattacoin really spurred interest in other parts of the county. because we do have some fantastic um, environmental resources. We have our, our greenways. There's a big push right now to reactivate the, the 2012 county greenway plan to really um, look at all of our trail systems. We have hundreds of miles of trails, equestrian trails, snowmobile trails, mountain bike trails, you name it, any kind of trail that's out there. But it's just really not advertised very well, and it's not really truly cohesively managed in some kind of environmental sense. Um, but that's all changing right now. We have a really active working group right now. We just started the uh, the Friends of the Chautauqua County Greenway group, Friends Group. I'm one of the vice presidents of that. Um, uh, Jacob Botway is making great headway, improving some of the trails for mountain biking to just make those more sustainable as well. So really exciting stuff's happening. Uh, but sort of in parallel, we also have this Martin Ecop waterway system which essentially entails most of the Conewango Creek and most of Casadega Creek. 
Um, in the aggregate, it's something like 45 miles of what once upon a time was canoeable, kayakable, fishable waterways. There's a series of boat launches along these, these different waterways as well. Parking areas, it's all there, but how many people know about it? And, and there too, I think a lack of interest, lack of funding, lack of, I don't know what it is, but it just hasn't happened for a long time. The maintenance has been kind of lagging. And there too, on top of everything else, you know, Emerald Ash Borer just dropped so many trees in all of these different places and the exploding beaver population just added to the headaches there. So um, the long and the short of it is that, you know, we as a county still promote the existence of a Martinique Cobb waterway system, but it's not truly usable in this current shape. It is also not really maintainable. We're kind of in the same shape where the, the Shadowcoin River was last year, at the start of last year, right? We all know what used to be better, but nobody really knows where to begin on this stuff. So, um, yeah, so the Shaka Watershed Conservancy was just awarded two county grants, uh, one from the, the um, Department of Environment, of, um, Economic Development and one from uh, the Department of Public Facilities. One's an emergency repair um, um, reserve fund. So historically, when a big tree fall would take place or some like dangerous situation would emerge, uh, someone would bring it to someone's attention and maybe sometime it would actually reach us and we would start the ball rolling on trying to get some emergency funding to deal with it. And it would generally come through, but it's a five, six, seven month process. And you can imagine the amount of damage that would happen. You know, these kind of things, if you deal with them quickly, they can often be dealt with quickly and cheaply relatively cheaply but you know if you have a tree go down and it just keeps catching other strainers and then the bank washes away then suddenly you have a thirty thousand dollar engineering job on your hands if you wait too long so so our request from the county was to actually just preemptively front load an account with money so we can just selectively deal with these projects as they crop up so we can just do more of them for less money and that was awarded so that that will help us deal with some of the emergency situations in some of the waterways and then we were also awarded that other grant that actually um, pays for the development of a new master plan for those waterways the, the county's major waterways and I purposely phrase it that way the county's major waterways because right now the Martin E. Cobb waterway only Entails, like I said, Casadega Creek and Conowango Creek, not the Shattercoin. Um, and because the Martin Cobb Waterway is essentially managed as a county park, state monies go to the county for maintaining those. So there is a funding mechanism in place for the county to maintain those two waterways, Conowango and Casadega. Um, if they were maintainable. So our hope is to get to that point and we can make it maintainable so that the funding is there to keep that going. Um, but what I would really like to see, and we've had some conversations with Andy Goodell, who is actually on the state committee to award those kind of park funds to the county, is that if we could make the Shattercoin River um, passable, canoeable, kayakable, we could potentially add that or have that added to the Martin Cobb waterway system, which would then connect Stockwell Lake to all of these 40-some miles of kayakable, fishable, canoeable, enjoyable waterways. Um, and if that was the case, hopefully we can also then go to the state and say, listen, we need some additional funding in the long term to maintain the Shattercoin and keep it open as well. So that's sort of the plan is to get to a point where we can activate all of those major waterways or at least identify where they can be activated. And then there's some additional funding in that grant award too to actually do some emergency cleanup. So there too, it's the first step towards something bigger and better. And it's it'll be a multi-year project, um, but very exciting to get started on it. 
Wow. And I, I wish we had more time to talk about that. That's a lot of great information. I'm sure we'll have you back in to give us an update on everything that's going on. But Tuan Linders, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me again.